Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Thank you for joining us. This week we are joined by an historian of religion and the Baptist religion in particular, Bill Leonard, and the author of Preventable, former Biden White House Senior Advisor for COVID Response, Andy Slavitt, on why the COVID-19 response was so was, was done so badly. Remember, we take your questions each episode. So write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can. And don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the link to our friend and sponsor Blinkist in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us. Remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James, there's not a week that goes by, maybe a day that goes by, where we don't learn more about the House of Horrors and the criminality of Donald Trump. This week we learned that they secretly subpoenaed phone records of House Intelligence Chair Adam Schiff and his family and another member, and of their own White House counsel, Don McCon. Now, this was not about investigating leaks in the classified information or some national security uh, problem. This was about political embarrassment, the probe that Schiff was making into Trump's Russian connections and Ukraine. It's an outrageous, perhaps an illicit act. We also found out that White House Chief of Staff Martin Meadows, last December, after the election, was pressuring the Justice Department to take action on the phony charges that it was a stolen election. The two of the attorney generals during that time, William Barr and Jeff Sessions, and the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, said, hey, God, you know, we're we're just playing the piano. We didn't know about anything going on, which leaves two possibilities. Either they're lying, which is a distinct possibility, or there was a rogue Trump operation inside the Justice Department doing this kind of stuff, which might be even worse. But all, it's just, and it's going to keep coming out. It ain't going to stop. You know, I watch Hogan's Heroes. I still got that thing. Sergeant Schultz. This is what I call the Sergeant Schultz crisis. I know nothing. I know nothing. No one knows anything. I don't happen. I, I, Daddy, I got pregnant in the swimming pool. All right? So much sense this makes. And, I, I mean, it, it, if we don't, there's not some effort to get people some answers and pretty quickly, uh, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be disappointed. Because I am becoming, as are other people, slightly, ever so slightly worried that the Justice Department is tripping over itself and not moving forward. But I hope, I hope the little tit I have in my stomach proves to be that Merrick Garland isn't being aggressive. We ought to know who uh, he knows who authorized this stuff. There's no reason he can't tell us that. Right. That's not a, that's not classified. Right. Who did it? You can, no, right, that's who all. Did it? And it turned out to be nothing. Right. They, they didn't have a right. you know, These people done it. But, 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 but why, why? It's like when you go to the game and they have a replay. They won't show you the replay. Why not? 
I paid $150 for this ticket, Mr. Lerner. I want to see it. I mean, what, there's no national security right. at risk here. Tell us who did well, this. Well, of course, the reaction among Republicans, Mitch McConnell says, hey, this is just political. We don't need to investigate this. Mitch McConnell doesn't believe in congressional investigations. And Jim Jordan, one of your favorite members, is outraged, not at what Justice did, but that, that uh, what Mark Meadows did, but that the Justice Department didn't try to help Mark Meadows' request to overturn the election. That's what Jim Jordan says. What do you, what do you expect? Okay, <laughs> uh, but I'm just saying I I don't know what what what's the holdup. Give us the answers now, and let's find out how this happened. Yeah, no, uh, I think I actually agree with you. There's a lot of I think should be a lot of pressure on Merrick Garland. Again, they can decide whether they want to launch investigations into this or that. This is a simple case of transparency, and it doesn't involve right. any kind well, of confidentiality. It's transparency. Who engaged in what I think were as I say. Certainly uh, unethical, uh, if not illicit activities. We just need to know who. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's not, okay, again, we're not asking for the, you know, nuclear code or anything. We're just a simple question. This has come up. It's a, it's a horrifying, terrible story. Somebody was doing it and say, well, it was just really some rogue guy deep in the bowels of the Justice Department. Okay, if that's the answer, that's the answer. Then, but tell us what the hell is going on. Hey, James, Biden took his first major foreign trip. I think he did pretty well. Uh, the NATO allies seemed just delighted that the president's name was not Donald Trump. Uh, that, that gave him certainly a leg up, but they had some, you know, some reasonable uh, substantive accomplishments. They all agreed they have to focus more on the China threat. He met with Putin. It's good. I think you should meet with foreign leaders, particularly adversaries that have nuclear weapons. Uh, but I doubt that it really changes much. Putin, Putin is a thug, a very tough thug. Uh, and it's good to meet with him, and maybe Biden was able to deliver a couple messages. But uh, I'm, I don't. I hate to sound like a cynic, but I think the value of these presidential foreign trips, uh, at least at home, uh, is often uh, exaggerated or ephemeral. Well, Gary Kasanoff takes a different view. He, he thinks that Biden should have met with Putin, that Putin loved this, it just increases his stature back home, nothing's going to get done. I don't know, but that, that's one point. But I'll say this, I'm, I'm not don't generally come to Vice President Harris's defense. I don't attack or anything. But so I, I think that the press gave her a bump, right? So Biden goes to, you know, Buckingham Palace, and she goes to Guatemala. And they said, well, Biden looked better than she did. Well, yeah, if I go to Buckingham Palace, I'm going to look better than I go to Guatemala. I mean, it, it, it's almost like if I'm the Harris people, and say, well, really, we, we, got, we got stiffed in this deal. And... You know, everybody bought into it. It was hard to look good in Guatemala. You know, when you got migrant and drug gains and every kind of problem you have, it's easy to look good in a control setting. Well, I also think the queen looked relieved, too, that it was Joe Biden yeah, and it wasn't Donald least. Trump. Uh, right. I think I, she was, yeah, I think earlier. Was I, 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 I do like I the fact that uh, Biden said the queen kind of reminds me of my mother. <laughs> that, is, that is vintage <laughs> Joe Biden. Uh, well, we'll you know we'll see. I I still think it was probably better to meet with this guy. He does have nuclear weapons. He is a menace. Uh, you can give him warnings. I don't think it'll make. Uh, I'm not sure it'll make much difference. But if you let him know you're going to retaliate, you know, which Trump did not, maybe it will. Maybe I, you look. I, I don't know. I'm just saying it was a contrarian right. view out there. I'm not that, that. You know, I agree with it. But right. you know, he comes across. 
you know, more to people that he, you know, because he's just trying to clean the power and be pretty successful at it. And, you know, he comes across as, you know, dominant figure on world stage. Yeah. But at any rate, it's just another, yeah. it's another thought. Okay. Hey, James, one of the best healthcare experts in America is Andy Slavitt, who ran the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid from 2015 to 2017 and was a special advisor to President Biden on COVID for the first four months of this year. Andy, your new book is Preventable, How Leadership Failures, Politics, and Selfishness Doomed the U.S. Coronavirus Response. What should have been done in January, February, March of 2020? And if we had responded had responded well, responded appropriately, there would have been still a lot of bad incidents. But how many of those 600,000 deaths might have been prevented? Well, look, I mean, pandemics aren't easy to manage. So you got to assume people are going to make mistakes. So it's not really the mistakes that I think we ought to be worried about. We ought to correct them for the next time. But, th- but there's some over and above sins that I think uh, are worth making sure we're paying attention to. Um, for one, I think Donald Trump denied his power to deny things that he doesn't like and try to convince others to deny them was, in this case, quite costly. If he just simply said, look, we have a problem um, when he knew it, and we know that he'd learned of this from uh, Bob Woodward's reporting early. He went to bed every night knowing people were going to die without saying anything. And if it wasn't for the stock market or the NBA, it's not clear he would have ever acknowledged them. The, the second thing that I think is, is quite dangerous is just the quashing of dissent within the administration. You know, at one point, Alex Azar, who was on his team running HHS, wanted to make a simple statement that things were okay, which they really weren't, but that they could change at any moment. He got pulled from Fox and Friends and pulled from the press for 45 days. And so you imagine this, we're in the middle of a pandemic and the Department of Health and Human Services isn't allowed to talk to the press or the public because they're not playing along with his narrative. And you saw that with Nancy Messonnier and you saw that with Tony Fauci and you saw that if you didn't play along to that narrative. And then he really used, I think, the divisions in this country to make it more than about the pandemic, but, but essentially said, if you, believe, if you wear a mask, you're against me. In many respects, and if you and if you and if you're on my team, um, there's a sort of tribal identification. You got to be against all this stuff, and all those things made things harder. If we hadn't done those things, you know, where would we be? You know, I mean, I think you know, a place like Germany, which which had a, a I think not a perfect response, had about 40% of the deaths per capita than we did, um, and I think you can assume that if we would have gotten on things earlier and not done some of these things, that we would have been somewhere probably about half of the losses that we are now, if not more. God, that's 300,000 Americans. That's just tragic. You know, you would have wished that Alex Azar would have resigned after that. He knew what was going on, uh, so he was a profile and cowardice. But the other, I mean, Trump was awful, we know that. But it also was his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. They decided that, that, the e- that economics, the economic recovery, a robust economy and a stock market were the key to their success, and they weren't going to let any some little damn COVID uh, virus get in the way. I think that's right. You know, I talked to Jared Kushner throughout the year, and, and I have verbatim everything, every one of our conversations is in this book. And, you know, his job was to deflect any accountability from his father-in-law onto the states and the state governors or to China or to anybody else. So he was on a political mission um, to, to do that. 
And, uh, you know, it is, and look, all of the people involved uh, are to some extent a reflection of the president. You know, I've worked for a president over the last four and a half months who said to me, don't worry about making me look good. Just give people the information they need to solve these problems. That made my job a lot easier. I will tell you that I could just, because I could just go out and say the things that, that I saw. If I were working for a different president who said, you know, at every moment I'd be worried about getting fired if I didn't make him look good, it would have been awfully hard to manage the pandemic. Well, it sure would have been. Uh, you know, the states did have a lot of responsibility here. That doesn't, ab- that doesn't absolve Trump or Kushner or Azar or anyone else. But in the states, uh, which states, you know, substantively did better and which didn't do very well? Well, you know, it's, what's, what's, what's interesting is that um, in, my, in my scorekeeping book, you get a B in pandemic if you just express some sympathy and if you show the people you're trying and you make good decisions the best you can. I talked to so many of the governors along the way, and so many of them did a good job that, you know, whether it's uh, Andy Bashir in Kentucky uh, or, or Governor of Ohio or Colorado, because, Minnesota, these are all governors that were trying their best. Um, that, that none of them got it perfectly right, uh, but they weren't playing games, they weren't playing politics, and, uh, you know, I don't, so, you, you know, you only get an A if you can prevent the pandemic, which is nearly impossible, you, but if you, if you can show a little bit of empathy and hard work, you can get a B, which is, which is kind of extraordinary that at some level Trump didn't, from a political perspective, just say, hey, you know, we got a problem, can you come on my side and rally? I think we all know that um, people tend to rally behind their leader at times of crisis, and he managed to not pull that off. Which governors get a D? You know, I think I think probably Nome in South Dakota. Um, she was unwilling to even the you know Debbie Burks had she was the only governor in the country that refused to sit down with Deborah Burks and go through the data. Um, she was, I think, more than happy to let the tribal territories take the brunt and their and her meatpacking plants take the brunt of things. She, she, she wanted a show of defiance to have the, this motorcycle rally in her state at a time when she was warned that it wouldn't be a good idea. So, you know, I think she gets the bottom grade. I mean, one more question. I want to turn it over to James. Uh, Andy, uh, big media is focusing, uh, I think, uh, rightfully, on whether the virus originated in a lab in China or not. So it's important to find out. But that wouldn't have had any real relevance to how we responded, where it came from. What the question was how we respond. Right. Well, look, I think it is important to know, uh, and the Chinese need to be need to cooperate. And if they don't cooperate, we need to put a lot of pressure on them through every means possible. Uh, but we don't know. I mean, the intelligence community is not confident they have an answer, which is not unusual, by the way. It's unfortunate, but it's not unusual. Um, you know, my my own view is that you know this thing does aerosolize. So, is it possible that someone dropped a test tube or something in a lab and got exposed? That's possible. There's no evidence of it. Uh, it wouldn't absolve, as to your point, Al, it wouldn't absolve anybody else of accountability for managing the response. What usually happens is a spillover from animals. But there's, again, no, no hard evidence of that, just circumstantial. So we, 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 we need to find out. But, but to your point, um, I, I don't think it changes the responsibility we have to take care of one another when something like this happens. James. So, uh, Andy, your book, is that there's going to be an entire publishing house devoted to COVID over the years. I mean, there's going to be you know, our friend and friend of the show and my dear friend John Barry kind of wrote the definitive history of the 19... There are going to be 100 definitive histories of this pandemic before we over. Uh, 
So what is it, 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 it that you, when I say public health, I mean public health establishment, you know, Dr. Fauci, which, which seemed to be pretty consistent in its view. What are some things that they might have gotten wrong out of the shoot that they're self-corrected for? Yeah. Well, look, I think we, if, if we knew, we always knew at the time there were things that if we, if we only knew them then, we would have done things better. Right. The degree to which this spreads through the air and not through grocery packages, it would right. have been nice to know that. Um, right. The degree to which, um, you know, large crowds um, are, and super spreaders, and we still don't know the characteristics of what makes a super spreader. We know that there are some people that spread this thing like crazy and some people that don't. At some point, we're going to discover what that is, and then we don't have to isolate uh, everybody. Um, you know, I think the um, what's a little bit tricky is in the first year, the CDC and the FDA couldn't really speak for themselves. They were hemmed in. Right. As soon as Nancy Messonnier said, hey, y'all ought to be careful and go inside, and, and there's going to be, you know, she, she was summarily um, nearly executed for that. And so the rest of the CDC and the FDA basically said, if we're going to stay here, we need to just, just basically say what the president wants us to say or do it surreptitiously. Once that happened, we lost our institutions. And those institutions aren't perfect, as you know, but they're the best we have. So what I always tell people, they call it the novel coronavirus. It ain't because William Faulkner wrote it. It's not that kind of novel. It's novel because it's new and we hadn't seen it before. So, you know, obviously when you're dealing with some, something the first time, you, you, it takes you a little while to get your, your sea legs, uh, if, if you will. I want to I want to go to the vaccines because let's have uh, I'm sure you know John Orsag is a good friend of mine. We're having done in California, and you know we said these vaccines are not just good; they're really better than we could ever imagine so far. It, it, do you agree with John and I's analysis of where these vaccines are now? And if you do, do we have any confidence going forward? We'll be in good shape. We we have no idea how fortunate we are. I mean, we we just we are so blessed. If we'd had a vaccine that had worked fifty. 55%, um, we would have felt okay about it, certainly from relative to where we were. So when the first studies came out and said that these things are highly tolerated and work at over 90%, when people ask me, what's the strategy behind getting people to be confident in them? I'm just like, let them watch people take it. Just let it happen because it's, a, it's the easiest product to sell. You don't need to spin it. I mean, if you, if you had a political candidate that was this good, uh, James, that you were uh, working for who had 95% popularity rate, right. you, your job would be much easier. So, you know, we have, we have, uh, we're very fortunate. Uh, I mean, it's not by accident. I mean, this is Tony Fauci investing two decades in the mRNA platform, uh, doing basic research. It's a vote of confidence for the fact that maybe we shouldn't only be worried about the deficit, but we should be investing in things that can help protect our country. So let's talk, because it's in the news today, and so on, you know, this, this Delta variant. How concerned should we be about this and how confident are we that us among the vaccinated will be able to stand up to this thing? Yeah, I mean, look, generally speaking, if your good rule of thumb is if you're not vaccinated, you should be more worried because this thing is like, it's just like a virus on steroids. It spreads easier. You don't need as much exposure. Um, and so if you haven't gotten it, you haven't gotten vaccinated, it's a reason, it's another reason to do it. If you've been vaccinated, you shouldn't be worried. It doesn't mean there won't be cases among people that are vaccinated. But here's the thing. If you get a mild case when you're vaccinated, if you hadn't been vaccinated, that would have been a severe case, it would have been a potentially deadly case. And so, so you know, little mild cases are actually going to be signs that the vaccine is working. 
the vaccine works a little bit differently that way. But we, we are going to be, from everything we know, the Delta variant responds incredibly well, 88% plus to the mRNA vaccines if you take two doses. England's in a little bit of a different shape because they've only given out one dose to most people. Well, I, I will turn it back to Al, but for all these unvaccinated people, my idea is they ought to have all get vasectomies because we don't need them in a gene pool. Okay, if you want to do that yourself, I guess so. But don't 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 bring children in this earth with that kind of goddamn stupidity. That you, guy told me, you know, I'm gonna wait and see. Was he waiting on? There's 160 million of us got it. You know, what we have in common. We're all walking around and breathing. Which, well, I mean, how, how big a sample size you need? You know, I mean, it's not like we did 20,000. You know, in 20,000, we've done. Yes, we had a thing with 600,000 sample size, but at any rate, I'm my hope, my hope is when the FDA gives final approval, which will happen soon, that those people will kind of go, okay, I was waiting. I'm not sure what I'm waiting for anymore because that is the that should be the final verdict for people who are still on the fence. So one more question. I'll try it back out. Uh, pausing the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Looking in retrospect, was that a mistake or was that the right thing to do? I'll tell you what, it, it depends from whose perspective you're asking. From the White House's perspective, which is where I was, um, the right thing to do was to let the scientists show the public that they, were gonna, they, that, they were gonna, that they could take action against any concern they had. And if, if it turned out, it could have turned out differently. It could have turned out that they, were, they needed to wait like a week to see how many more cases showed up. If a thousand more cases showed up, um, it would have been irresponsible that they hadn't done it. So they did what they thought was best. It obviously hurt people's perception of the product. There's no question, There's no question. But in the long run, I think it helped people's perception that the FDA wasn't gonna let some vaccines that had horrible side effects out there. And so I'm hoping in the long run that people saw that we do have institutions that have our back and that we're not gonna let dangerous drugs on the market. Uh, and let me go back to the vaccines for a minute. Uh, Trump was a colossal failure uh, in this whole Thing. It would be it's going to be an indelible stain, one of many uh, of his presidency. Does he deserve any credit for the vaccines being developed uh, far faster than people thought? He deserves some. Um, and and he, here's here's how I look at it. Um, I mean, this is first of all, if you're a Republican, you're a Democrat. This vaccine was developed over about two decades, starting in the George W. Bush years, through the Obama years, through the Trump years. Um, this was a, if you're if you're anti-government, this was developed a lot by the private sector. If you're pro-government, this was de developed with taxpayer money. Everybody should feel good about this, and nobody should be should be chintzy with credit when there's when there's credit to go around. Now, as a point of fact, what happened was, and the book outlines this, there were three people, three civil servants in the government, led by a guy named Peter Marks of the FDA, who had a brilliant idea, which he called Operation Warp Speed. He called it that because he was a Star Trek nut, and he basically said. Instead of having pharmaceutical companies send us information as they do trials, why don't we send people from the FDA and from BARDA and NH over to the pharma companies so they can observe it real time? That will cut out you know, a year from the process of, of, cutting, of, of, of just kind of administrivia. It was a great plan. They brought it to Alex Azar, and Alex Azar signed off on it, and Congress funded it. So Alex Azar signed off on it, and therefore I think the administration deserves credit because they could have not funded it. Now, I can't imagine a world in which an administration wouldn't have funded that idea. But the idea, like most good things, they're not from the politicals. They're from, these, they're from the, the career civil servants who are doing the job day in and day out, who Trump just continued to demonize and call the deep state and swamp and so forth. But it was the deep state and the swamp that got us out of this mess. Well, 
that's another great story about, about the value of bureaucrats. Uh, Andy, look, I know there are legal questions, but just from my perspective, I think that colleges, hospitals, uh, uh, you know, various places, even, even certain offices, cruise ships, ought to be able to require vaccination before you go there. Not, you know, it's not, not the notion of infringing on people's freedom, but they're infringing on other people's rights and freedoms and, and, and health. Uh, why isn't the Biden administration pushing that harder? Is it political or is it legal? Well, I agree with you. Look, I went to a ball game and we had a chance to buy tickets in the vaccinated section, my son and I, basketball game, and we went to the back vaccinated section. So I think over time, most businesses, at least for an interim period of time, are going to have um, something. And, and, it's, if, and if you don't want to get vaccinated, fine, then take a test and show you got a negative result. And if you don't want to do that, maybe you got to wear like four masks or something. But each business, I think, is going to should be able to decide for, for itself. I can't imagine anyone getting on a cruise that, that doesn't have a guaranteed vaccination, for example. Um, I think what would have been what would have backfired is if the Biden administration had said, we're going to do something that's going to look like either a requirement or keep a surveillance database, because then all the people who don't trust the vaccine or think or they're not sure um, that's the narrative that that's the narrative that, that that they were worried about and that's a narrative that was being exploited and so I think it was our perspective that that ought to come from the private sector it ought to come from businesses that it'll happen on its own we ought to support it by making sure that there's a single standard and that it's free to consumers and so forth but if we were seen to be driving it we would have really depressed vaccination rates I think that's, a, I, that's a good point and I think you know places like the governor of Florida are uh, are saying that localities do not have the right to re- to have a mask mandate. I mean, they're going the other way. Uh, and it seems to me that, uh, you know, with a variant and everything, yeah. that's just dangerous. My, my view is pop- populism and public health do not mix very well. If you want to be a popular politician and you want to please people and you want to send out your, um, you know, create, create a cause by, by defying public health um, and make people happy, it's, it's not a good mix. You got to make tough decisions in a public health crisis that make people unhappy. And when the governor of Florida or the or the former president does that, it's not very good for the country. So Bob Rubin observed when he left Goldman Sachs the Treasury Department, he said he didn't detect a one percent decline in talent. And you have swung back and forth between the private sector and worked in in the high level of government. Do you concur that we're pretty fortunate that we have some pretty talented people in the bureaucracy of the United States? Has that been your experience the same as Bob's? Yeah, completely. I mean, here's how I look at it. There, we got more expertise in the, in the federal government than we have anywhere else. It's narrow. It's deep. So if you want to find the world expert on what happens if Pakistan attacks India, that person undoubtedly works in the federal government, and they've been spending their entire career. And that is completely invaluable skill until Pakistan attacks India then it becomes a very valuable skill. What you don't have in the federal government that you have in the private sector is the kind of cross-cutting leadership that that knows how to organize all that talent to get things done quickly and efficiently. And and that's what I think, you know, Ron Klain was good at doing during Ebola. That's what we set out to do here, which is say we don't need an ounce more knowledge. We just need to organize it. Right. Well, I mean, I think it's, you know, and if we go back and I look at when we watch this Alice Gibney movie, we had him on the show, this climate of the century about the opiates, and the, the bureaucrats came out looking pretty damn good at it. And the bureaucrats came out looking really good 
as a sort of institutional check on Trump. And the bureaucrats are coming out, going to come out at the end of this, looking, you know, not perfect, but being right way more often than being wrong. And, I, you know, my daddy was a postmaster, so I have a soft spot for bureaucrats. It's a classy post office. Let's not get carried away here. But uh, and when I hear from people like you and Bob and other people, you know, attesting to that, what I want to believe, it, it, it makes me feel better about the country. It really does. Absolutely. We can't, we can't diminish these institutions. And, you know, I think it's, da- it's dangerous because when we need them, you know, they're, they're the best we got. As you said, they're not going to be perfect, but I'd rather have them making the call than, you know, some, you know, what, what's the alternative to, to the FDA? It's some, some huckster traveling town to town telling you that his medicine's better than someone else's and we don't have a single source? Right. Okay, yeah. Albert. That was- a- Andy, the most prominent bureaucrat, probably most visible, best known bureaucrat is Dr. Anthony Fauci. Uh, a number of House Republicans and Rand Paul want to censure Dr. Fauci. Your take. So I want to know what Rand Paul was doing on January 11th, and I want to know what Rand Paul was doing on January 13th, because I know what Anthony Fauci was doing. January 11th, when this, when this virus happened, he downloaded the, the genomic sequence. On January 13th, he and his team got that sequence over to Moderna to start working on a vaccine that day. I don't know what Rand Paul's been doing the last two decades, because for the last two decades, Fauci and his team have created this mRNA platform. This great vaccine we have didn't happen by accident. It happened because we invested in basic research and because Fauci saw with SARS and MERS that we were going to need this platform. So I think these guys ought to be careful when they when they when they go look and find these gotcha moments um, in the guy's emails. The guy's a premier scientist. Um, the, the, if we, we would not be in the place we are right now. Um, and he's a modest guy. I mean, he's, he said, look, I've said some things that I've had to later go, go on and, and correct. Um, you know, you can't be in this space if you're, not, uh, if you're not willing to do that. But I'll tell you, the easiest sport in the world, and you, all, you both know this because you've seen it over and over again, is to go look, the, roll the tape back a year and find some things that people said that look pretty stupid in retrospect. And people do that, it makes them feel better. It makes them feel smarter. It makes them feel like the experts don't have anything on them. And it's just a dangerous game when it comes down to something serious like a pandemic. Well, uh, James, you and I have never said anything that we regret, I know. But uh, I think think that's a very good point. And I'll tell you something. Rand Paul, um, my wife went to Duke, and I think Duke is a great institution. Uh, but uh, uh, Rand Paul is not uh, one of the more distinguished alums of Rand Paul. He's been nothing but destructive. Before I let you go, I want to read a paragraph from the Washington Post. It's going to take a little bit while, but I think I think it's worth it. And this is in the Post describing the Norvax vaccine. Norvax uses insect cells originally harvested from the ovaries of the fall armyworm and grows enormous number of these cells in giant bioreactors. Scientists use a baculovirus, which infects, in, which infects cells to insert genetic instructions from and it just goes on and on. And just just to think that people we have people that smart, that creative, that are working, and apparently this vaccine is very good. I mean, I I think it, at some point this has been a horrible pandemic, but you know it, your book is a contributes a lot. I, I think there's going to be some real heroes emerge from this in, in ways that we can't imagine. I'm hopeful. I, I look. I I think so too. I'm, I mean, look, Rand Paul. These people, I mean, look, you guys are much more experts than I am, but from my, from my observation, they become a slave to their supporters. 
So if they have supporters that want to see them saying absurd, crazy things, if they have supporters that want to see them, supporters attacking Anthony Fauci, there's plenty of f- fodder for that. But the truth is you'd think these guys would be smart enough underneath it all to say, there's real serious scientists doing real serious work that don't give a shit about politics, that don't, re- you know, that they're doing that, what you just described, which is just absolutely, it's like one of those gymnasts that does like 40 flips in the air and then lands. Right. I mean, how do you do that? And Andy, the only modification I make is that Rand Paul inherited his craziness naturally. He got it from his old man. <laughs> they're both crazy. Hey, listen, this you know, is You a, know what, the old a, man... Rand Paul, the old man was kind of goofy. Rand Uh, Paul is a massive asshole. No, no, Rand, no, the old man was too, James. I covered the old man. He was a vicious racist. He was terrible. The whole, it's it's, it's in the Paul family genes, whatever you think about genes. (laughs) All I want to know is, say is Andy Slavitt, this is a terrific book, Preventable, How Our Leadership Failures Cost Us in the Coronavirus Crisis. Everyone ought to read it. You, you have been a great public servant, and uh, thank you for being on this show. Yeah, I hope the governor doesn't need you back, because <laughs> the only time you come back is when we got a disaster. That's right. That's right. I think I'm going to retire. I'm going to hang on my boots. So thank you, guys. All right. It's a pleasure right. to talk to both of you guys. You're both, you're both kind of heroes of ours in our household. Thank you. Well, take care, Andy. Hey, James, have you ever had one of those ideas that you just don't know how to get started on making it into a reality? Don't waste time waiting to learn what's important. Get to it. It's why we use Blinkist. Blinkist takes top-note nonfiction books, pulls out the key takeaways, and gives you text and audio explainers called Blinks that you can learn from in just 15 minutes. You can use Blinks to tackle procrastination, a problem some of us have, Get started on developing an idea or business, take your projects to the next level, or dive into history with titles like A Short History of Brexit and What Happened. I, I, I need A Short History of Brexit. They blink thousands of titles in 27 categories, and if you like podcasts, they blink those too with Shortcast, and it's all in one app and right in your pocket so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. You're a big fan, James. I'm a huge fan. I, I, I think they're going to do this. I'm, I'm suggested to it. You know, we're, we're talking to Andy Slavin today about the number of books that just the massive libraries that are going to come out on this. You know, Michael Lewis already has a book. And I bet you they're going to do a little sheet, you know, where they distill all of the books and what we learned in the pandemic. And that, that's something I'm going to be really interested in going forward. That you, you can't read 100 books on something, but they got smart people that can do that and, and distill what's going on. I think they have a unique contribution to make here to the literature coming up on, on this whole COVID literature. I really do. I, they're terrific. And, and you do it. I mean, sometimes I've, I've looked at a book that I know and they don't get much wrong. I mean, no, they don't they, get much wrong. They are, they are really good. You know, how do you use Blinkist and about great books for the summer? You know, there's Fire and Fury by Michael Wolf, The Soul of America by John Meacham. This is the time to go to them now. And right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com, War Room, to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash War Room to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash War Room or look for the link in our show notes. 
Hey, the Southern Baptists, the largest Protestant denomination in America, an important political force for conservative Republicans and Donald Trump, are engaged in a bitter internal schism with rebellion from the right-wing fundamentalists. There is no one better to discuss this than a Baptist preacher, Bill Leonard. Actually, it was, I think, Billy Jim Leonard as he was growing up. Uh, who also was the founding dean of the Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Bill, we're so pleased to have you. Tell us the Nashville convention, the far-right candidate, the really far-right candidate, the really crazy candidate, didn't win. He was defeated. Uh, does that mean that the fundamentalist, anti-woman, anti-black uh, faction within the Southern Baptists is on the decline? No, uh, and actually the entire convention now is what would be considered ideologically fundamentalist. What we're judging here, what we're dealing with here, are degrees of fundamentalism. How authoritarian do you want to be and how strongly do you want to push uh, doctrinal and, in, as we see now, political uniformity? So uh, this, is, this is a division between very, very conservative uh, authoritarian uh, promoting uh, fundamentalists. Bill, we don't want to go delve too deeply in the history, but I think you have written and noted, and this is just interesting, that an important touchstone for this denomination, the Southern Baptists, was the Civil War and the Lost Cause movement, which glorified slavery. Yes, Southern Baptists began in 1845 uh, splitting over slavery the way the Methodists and the Presbyterians did. Uh, and, and in doing that, they claimed biblical authority for uh, legitimizing chattel slavery. Uh, Richard Furman in 1822, First Baptist Church, Charleston, South Carolina, wrote, had the holding of slaves been a moral evil, we cannot suppose that the holy apostles who feared not the faces of men would have tolerated it for a moment in the Christian church. And uh, with that, uh, they staked biblical authority on Southern victory. And when that did not happen, they were thrown into chaos and they went back to that same method of interpretation, many uh, in terms of the lost cause, uh, that response to reconstruction and the sort of uh, reunifying of the South uh, in the United States, uh, and then Jim Crow, and now uh, the difficulties with African Americans, which has been there from the beginning. I, I think, Bill, correct me if I'm wrong, that about 15 years ago, about 20% of Southern Baptists were blacks. Uh, has, is, is, is that receding? Is that diminishing? I think now about 8% of Southern Baptists, about 85% of Southern, 80 to 85% are white. And I think the latest st statistics would say around 8% are black and uh, maybe 3% or so are uh, Latinx, Latino, Latina. One, one question on politics, and I'll turn it over to James. Donald Trump, the Southern Baptists were uh, in his hip pocket they were important support. That is the epitome of hypocrisy for a supposedly moralistic, righteous, fundamentalist group to embrace thrice-married, misogynist, crude huckster. I mean, how did they justify that? Uh, this 
this republicanization of the Southern Baptist Convention didn't begin with Trump. It really began with people like Lee Atwater and Ed McAteer and Judge Paul Pressler in the, and the beginning of what's been called the new religious right in America around 1980, the Reagan years. Uh, and that was when the Republicans cultivated a new base, uh, evangelical and largely Southern Baptist. And out of that evolution from the 80s uh, into the present time, uh, the Southern Baptists have moved much more radically toward uh, Trumpism and the Republican Party, in part because they are losing status in the culture. Protestant privilege is passing away fast, and so they, they uh, co have connected even more intently with uh, that resource, Republicans and Trump, that would help them regain some Protestant privilege. James. So, so uh, you know, you and I are, are the same generation. I was a pre-Vatican II altar boy. You were a Baptist preacher. You turned out to be a scholar. And, you know, at that time when we were young, it mattered what the bishop said. It mattered what the archbishop said. It mattered what the pastor of the First Baptist Church said. And today, I think the biggest problem that they have is no one cares. I mean, you got a smaller group now, the Catholics are fighting with the Pope as to whether or not Biden can get communion. The Southern Baptists have a f elected a leader with 52% of the vote with a, with a looming schism on their side. And the reaction of most people is, eh, who cares anymore? Yes. It, it, do, you, do you have that sense that, that organized religion's biggest challenge in coming up is relevancy? It's yes. Not that, you do, okay. <laughs> I do, and, and, and it goes back to what I was saying about the loss of Protestant privilege and what I have called the changing sociology of Sunday in America. People ask me, what do you mean by the changing sociology of Sunday? I say, I'll give you a one-word answer, soccer. And everybody knows that, that right. Sunday used, as you were saying, Sunday used to be an important day that the whole culture united around uh, for... Uh, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 11 o'clock church. Uh, now Sunday carries huge weights in the larger culture, even for church-going people. But the biggest change, uh, Mr. Carville, is the rise of what we call the nuns or the nons, N-O-N-E-S. Right. Uh, right. And this is a growing percentage of persons in the 2000s in every survey who uh, note that they have no formal religious affiliation. That's, that's about one in five of the general population and one in three millennials, 18 to 30. So what, you know, when you, with your students, and I mean, obviously someone pursues a graduate degree in divinity because they're highly motivated and highly interested. What would somebody, the better divinity students at Wake Forest say the church needs to do to re-engage with people and, and make itself relevant again? One thing would be it needs to stop waiting on people to come to church and for increasingly every congregation uh, to go to the people in offering a variety of uh, ways of uh, caring for persons responding, the Divinity School mission statement says uh, that uh, we are for justice, reconciliation, and compassion in training ministers, teaching them to do that. The, the, you've, been, you've been correct to say people used to move to a new town and find a new 
congregation somewhere. That's gone. So churches have to reach out, and also churches have to find ways to speak to the culture uh, in ways that sound uh, welcoming and compassionate. I hear a lot of this from high-end religion. People are just sloth today. They don't accept religion. They, they need discipline. You don't think you had something to do with that? I mean, really? I, I mean, I think Jesse DePlantis and, and Cardinal Law and, and T.J. Jakes and, and all of these people, you don't think that maybe organized religion is somewhat of a culprit in the fact that people don't follow it like they used to? Maybe the blame is with you more than the people. Absolutely true. And, and religion tends to, Catholics and Protestants, tend to denounce secularism as stealing people away. But before they do that, they have to look at the ways in which they drove people away. And the names you mention are, are very much the case also. Now the Southern Baptists are dealing with this and the Roman Catholics haven't gotten past it yet. And that is sexual abuse. Not only sexual abuse, but sexual abuse that was covered up by church leaders. Paul Pressler, Paige Patterson, let's name names here. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, let's name names. Yes. And, well, that, yeah. that, I mean, Russell Moore, who is a genuine conservative intellectual, uh, conservative certainly, in the Southern Baptist, he's left the Southern Baptist now, but, but he, he revealed awful stuff, Bill. I mean, it really is. They were, as you say, they were covering it up. Uh, I mean, again, uh, I know a lot of these fundamentalists are anti-women. Uh, they think women should be subservient. But my God, how do they just, I mean, what's their justification for the stuff that Russell Moore documented? Uh, I think two or three things, and this is where I think some of the larger political values overlap. Uh, and this goes back to James's comment. Uh, authoritarian priests or ministers, particularly in Protestantism, fundamentalism, uh, pushed pastors to be the under-shepherd, the divinely ordained authority figure. And that often led to a sense of arrogance and a sense of protectionism for uh, priests and uh, clergy uh, reverends who had uh, experienced and, and participated in uh, and instigated uh, huge abuse, and not just sexual abuse, but a way of uh, running people off and beating people up because they didn't conform to the particular doctrines that, let's say, uh, the uh, Southern Baptists wanted to, to uh, make normative and uniform. Right. Bill, um, you believe, I think, uh, that, that politically, culturally, and religiously, the fundamentalist Baptists as you put it, are dropping like a stone. Uh, tell, us, tell, tell us why and what's happening. Well, this gets into James's comment. Uh, demographically, uh, churches in America across the theological spectrum are aging. People are disengaging. There's one study Christianity Today did recently, or several years ago, that suggested that... Um, uh, 50% of the young people raised Southern Baptist had left the denomination by young adulthood. And uh, so it, it's what he was saying. Uh, people are listening to what's being said in the churches and not appreciating it, not responding positively to it. Because what often sounds like orthodoxy in some of these churches sounds like bigotry in the public square. Of course, and, Bill, some of these churches in both the Catholic Church and the Baptist uh, fundamentalists, 
They want a smaller group. They want a smaller, more fervent, more devoted followers. And uh, they would say uh, we're better off that way. Yes, yes and no. One thing is that's what that's what many of them are saying right now. So that, quote unquote, the real Christians who believe the right doctrines can stay with us. But for since since the early 20th century, Southern Baptists uh, made growth and evangelism and uh, winning souls to Jesus one of the signposts for what that they were doing, what God wanted them to do uh, in the culture. And so the, one of the things that has them panicked is for at least 16 years, and I think uh, much longer than that, they have shown declines in membership and their baptisms. Because they baptize uh, older persons, uh, then, then that, that adult baptism rate is a very important statistic for them annually. And that's what's dropping like a stone. But so are the other denominations as well. James? You know, you see that, of course, as it shrinks, as the church shrinks, the arguments become more intense and more heated. And I'm almost to the point where these couches take the whole thing, take the marble, take the tapestry, take the gold, take the vestments, and just leave us with a kind of a community of believers. I think we have a, you know, 2,000-year-plus tradition, and believe it, you know, that you know, love your neighbor as yourself is the central tenet of all religion and all Christianity, and just go and, and, and you know, on high holy days, you know, or Easter, maybe we'll go to one of your high masses and, you know, stay connected with our past, but you're fighting over nothing. I, I, that's my view, and I, and I think some of these, like, orthodox, you know, people, they're, they're, they're fighting over a diminished, they used to fight over 100 people, now they're fighting over 20 people. We'll fight hard. Another 80, we we got to go about our lives. Yes, and one of the things I've been saying because of the way things have developed in the SBC is how many things do you have to sign to be a Southern Baptist? Because one of the uh, uh, elements of fundamentalism is uh, no one is ever quite orthodox enough, and that's a major problem. But, but I want to come back and say the church America needs church in terms of these great traditions uh, that have always been tainted in a, in a variety of ways because of human beings. But uh, this idea of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, on the teachings of Jesus, uh, on Jesus himself as a person uh, and, and uh, as, as uh, a person who in his lifetime taught these great values of justice and mercy and good faith. But uh, one of the things that's happened to Southern Baptists is this sense of religious experience, maybe to Roman Catholics too, uh, that um, one had an encounter with Jesus uh, personally and personal religious experience with the transcendent was an extremely important element of the early Baptist life and it was transforming for persons. But when you substitute that for uh, intellectualized uh, orthodoxy, rationalized orthodoxy, then you lose the heart. Uh, the, the, the heartwarming religion of John Wesley, that's his phrase, uh, and uh, uh, early evangelicals can be transformed so readily, as uh, Mr. Carville says, into what Ralph Waldo Emerson called corpse-cold creedalism. And that will destroy meaningful faith, and that's the faith that has to be uh, 
revivified, uh, renewed. But the other problem is we built these huge church buildings and church plants as if, like the stock market, uh, participation was going to go up every year. And so many congregations are, are caught in uh, buildings they can no longer afford. The, the church as the body of Christ is not going to die. But churches around the country are having to change uh, and, and hurry to meet the changing cultural moment, as Mr. Carvel has pointed out. Bill, you, Bill, you can call him James, and he can, and, and James, I want you to call him Bill, though, not, not, not Billy Jim. <laughs> <laughs> We're on. Um, so, I, I see, just one more point, go ahead. I wonder if the Baptists and the Catholics are going to have Judaism for their model, where you'll have a certain percent that'll be very intense, and a lot of people will observe Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah, you know, but that's about that that you know sort of cultural that will in the future will be cultural christians and a group of really hardcore people will make a lot of noise and not have very many people and we you know, the same thing happened is happening in judaism you know I, I i don't know you know it's a small part of judaism that are you know the hasidim or the ultra orthodox but there are a lot of people that still adhere to the culture and the traditions and I find the traditions of the church, it's a 2,000-year framework of, of looking at things to be kind of comforting and interesting. I like to study about it. And I don't know if that's not going to be the future, Bill. I really don't. I think, I think at this moment in time, it is, uh, it's not just the future. It is the reality. This is happening now. And uh, churches all around the country are struggling with their identity and with uh, their survival in many ways. And large numbers of churches in this country, I've seen the figure of as many as 10,000 churches close annually. Uh, and that's across the theological spectrum. And um, uh, part of what's happening, though, is that the culture is changing and churches have to adapt. The 11 o'clock Sunday service was built on frontier culture. You got up, you did the chores, and you got in the wagon, and you went to church, and you could get there before noon. It, it, was, it grew out of rural church life in the country, and uh, it, it lasted a long time and stayed with urban life. Catholics, you know, years and years ago started with Saturday Mass because right. Sunday was changing so drastically. And, sure. and, and that kind of adaptation, but the, but the burden of the building is a major factor in keeping churches from changing at probably as radically as they may need to. And so one of, this is just a, a law of unintended consequences. It, the bishop in Baton Rouge outlawed Saturday weddings which was the best thing that ever happened to New Orleans hotels and stuff because everybody in Baton Rouge would come to New Orleans to get married on Saturday and they'd have the reception and they were spending a ton of money and it cost Baton Rouge a fortune. In fact, my, a lot of my, my niece and nephew, all, they all got married in New Orleans all the way from Baton Rouge because they wanted to get married on Saturday. <laughs> I mean, just like the bishop could adjust, could adjust and say, okay, well, we can figure a way to do both. But anyway, it, it was such a pleasure having you on, Bill. It was. What a delightful guy you are. What a magnificent contribution you made to, to our country and, you know, wisdom. And I, I hope these guys get through this on both sides of the ball here. <laughs> well, I, I'll, finish I, with, with, I'll finish with one quick thing. Years ago when I taught at a Southern Baptist seminary and we all had to leave. 
when the right wing came, I said, I suspect there will come a day when there are only two Southern Baptists left, and each of them will think the other is a liberal. So I'll leave you all with that point. Well, Bill, I, I will say before you go that, that uh, you want to talk about a change. When I first went to Wake Forest, the fundamentalist Baptists condemned dancing, and now the fundamentalist Baptists are enabling sex abuse. I mean, that is not a change in the right direction. But I want to say, James, one thing about Bill Leonard. He, he, found, he was the founding dean of the Divinity School at Wake Forest. In 25 years, it's become one of the great divinity schools in America. And he was very ecumenical, Jewish, Catholic, as well as Protestant professors. And you supported LGBT students. Uh, and you created a terrific divinity school. And you happen to be a terrific guest. Thank you, Bill Leonard. Thank you, Al. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, All right, James, now for our favorite listener questions. Scott from Freehome, Georgia. You know where Freehome, Georgia is? I don't, I don't, I haven't been there. I, I, I don't, I don't. I, I know Georgia yeah, I do well, too. but that's okay. I'll talk Sometimes to you, I'll talk to you about this later, okay. but, uh, and we'll do it in the air, but in a month, you know where I'm going? Plains, where Georgia. Going? Oh, Plains, Georgia, goodness. I'll tell you all about it. I'll tell everybody all about it when we get there. I'm, I'm, I'm following my wife there, actually. But it's Jimmy and Rosalind Carter's 75th wedding anniversary. And I actually met my wife on the Plains, Georgia softball field. So it's something I'm looking forward to. Anyway, Scott from Free Home, Georgia asked, what do we need to do to get Democrats to start pointing out Amazon with 100,000 trucks, 60-plus airplanes, uses more port rails, bridges, broadband, and pays no taxes? They also, according to the New York Times this week, don't treat some of their employees very well. Uh First of all, this story it just adds a you know significant body of literature to the fact that there's two Americas out there, and big corporations and rich people live in one America, and everybody else lives in the other America. And this is not a conducive story. I think it speaks very well to Secretary Yellen's pushing forward proposal for like a 15% minimum corporate tax. What these guys did not pay was income tax. And so if you're the CEO, you could just cash the stock, you know, you can do what you want. You got your own airplane, your own house, your own security force, you own everything. I, you know, it's probably not going to happen, but, uh, you know, I wish, you know, it's not going to happen. It's not probably not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And we really took a hard look at the tax code and how to get a more broad-based source of revenue in this country. I'm not optimistic. Well, I, I couldn't agree more, and I also agree, unfortunately, that you're right. It's not going to happen. Uh, the interests are too big and too powerful. Uh, the next question comes from Rob in Rosemont, Pennsylvania. James, i got to take this one because that's my, that's, that's my stomping grounds. That's where I grew up uh, on, the, uh, on the so-called main line. Rob asks, as we've witnessed every fall, political ads dominate the airways. Why aren't the Democrats putting all their chips on strategic, surgical, selective, and compelling ads in the television television markets of every state where a senator is up for re-election. First of all, I'm going to yield to you on the expertise of what you, where you ought to spend your money. My impression is that uh, a lot of campaigns now spend proportionately less on television ads and, and more on social media and digital ads. They think they can more effectively reach people. Again, you know more about that than I do. And you don't want to advertise 
whatever it is in every state, because frankly, there are not 34 Senate elections that are competitive next year. But there are seven or eight that really matter, and that's where your focus should be. Right. It, it, I, I, think, I think he's right. I mean, whether you call it, just say advertising, whether it's television or look, radio is huge, particularly in rural areas. You know, the, the average car is like seven, ten years old. So that's huge. Digital is huge. So let, let's just use the word advertising, and that way we, we would encompass a lot more. I, I, I think there's a good body of literature to say that this early stuff works. Uh, we certainly saw it work at, our, at, at what we did at Bridge. I think the Democrats are, are, are missing a point. We should, whatever we do between 9 and 22, should move the ball as far as we can, but every decision we have to make is to have a good 2022 because the attitude now is we got to hurry up and do everything because we're going to have a terrible 2022. Well, I don't think that's a given. I, I, and I, you know, so far, I mean, I have election returns in New Mexico, in Virginia, which, look, it could all change. It could all go to hell in the handbasket. But right now, if you look at Biden's approval, is very steady. I don't, I, other than Sam Wallace's historical, James, I understand that. But as of now, I, I don't see anything that tells me we're destined to have a bad year. And if we could pick up a couple of three Senate seats and maybe four or five House seats, then you, you change the world from 22 well, to 24. On the one hand, that would be a fabulous year for Democrats. On the other hand, if it went the other way and they lost control of the House yeah, and lost right. the Senate, it would be a disaster for Biden and his final two years. Yeah. And for the it's going to happen. You can't, you can't put the election right. off. You're going to have it anyway. So why don't we try to be doing it we're, and we're, we're, with the, the current configuration, we're not going to get everything that we want. We're not going to get remotely close to, to everything we want. We'll be lucky if we get anything we want. And so what we, we, so if, if they come up with a compromise bill, X hundred millions of dollars, that, it's not what you want. What is in the political best interest of building on, on, on the Senate? Is it better to take the deal and, or better not to take it? But that's the framework that I would look at it through. And, and literally every decision would be with that paramount concern. Does this help or hurt us in I agree. Uh, James, the next question is a good question, uh, and I am so afraid of botching up where Summit is from. Summit is, is, is writing us from, I think I'm going to try now, Jevrai Maharishtra, India. Uh, I think that, but I know Summit is the is the is the correspondent. Right. Summit said when he was in the second grade, we were introduced to computers for the first time, and he still remembers. In our very first class, the teacher said, "If you get a good computer, you'll be able to get a job in America." Yes, for too long, getting a job in the United States was a dream of every kid in India. The U.S. was always the envy of the world, the shining city on the hill, represented liberty and freedom uh, at, at, at its very best. The January 6th attacks on your capital were a terrible shock and a blow to that image. My questions are, what should the Democrats do to win over rural and southern white votes? And uh, the U.S., these are two questions. We can take them up separately. It's, it, uh, you know, Summit points out U.S. ceremoniously withdrew from the Paris Agreement and the Iran nuclear deal. Now Biden is back in. But how do foreign countries know that this just won't be a blip? Back and forth. We'll go back to Trump policies in four years. Well, first of all, somebody, let me say, I hope that uh, you're in Homeland. I hope you all are doing better. I know you've had a, a, a terrible time with this, with this virus and the variant. So uh, many, I think, people's, you know, really 
concerned about it, and I hope that you and your family are, are, are safe and that you, you stay that way. Uh, you know, look, this has been a, a terrible setback for this country. And, you know, but we've had terrible setbacks before. And I, I think, I, you know, I, I don't blame you for feeling that way. Uh, I would, if I were from India and wanted, you know, you love the United States and wanted to come back, I'd take a look see attitude. But, but I, I think I, I think we're going to get back on, on a track that, that you'll, again, uh, want to care about us and maybe come over here and take some of the magnificent skills you have and contribute to, to, to our country. But regardless, uh, I think I think it will get better, and I hope that India gets better with this horrific virus yeah, they're faced with. Uh, I do too. Boy, they, they really have it, uh, have it badly. Uh, Karen in the Niagara region of southern Ontario. As an outsider looking in, she said it seems like the Republican Party is close to or becoming an authoritarian party bent on ending really democratic rights and the erosion of voting rights to the batshit conspiracy theories and even the present threat of violence. You know something? I would have said, Karen, look, we go back and forth. There, you know, there are blips in this, but, 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 but that's not going to happen in this country. I don't say that anymore with the confidence I would have had before. I think there is, there is certainly Trump is an authoritarian. Uh, he only was prevented uh, by the courts and by some limits of political strictures. But I think that a lot of the Republican Party has adopted what I think is an authoritarian approach. And I think it's dangerous. And uh, I think they have to be called out for it. And I fear that they, under the guise of populism, they're having some success. Well, they're, they're certainly an anti-small D Democratic Party. You just you basically say that. Right? That, that's not the, the goal. Rand Paul says, well, look, Jim Crow was uh, uh, coming in by everybody, by people having the right to vote. I, I know I used to hear from, you know, these really old Southern blacks how they all voted for Jim Crow. That's <laughs> what they really wanted. I mean, it's, uh, look, it, it's just something that, you know, it, it's going to be a struggle here for a while. There's no way about it. Uh, this is the question we talked about earlier, alluded to earlier, and this is Peter... And Peter's in Atlanta via McAllen, Texas. Uh, so, well, Free House is is I looked it up, and it's uh it looks like it's about twenty five north of Alpharetta, which is about twenty five miles north of Atlanta. Somebody had my geography right. wrong, but it's in All North right. Georgia. Well, I, I hope Marjorie Green's not his uh, his representative. Oh. Might be, oh, be close, but if, if 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 it's not, it's it's equally, you know, it's somebody else that Peter, who is in either Atlanta or McAllen, Texas. Said, says, Biden seems totally detached from what's going on at the border. Harris can't figure out how to point Air Force Two to the border. Uh, and AOC and other progressives, or latte liberalism, totally disconnect with what's going on down there. How bad does it have to get before Democrats wake up? Well, I think they're woke. <laughs> and, uh, it, the problem with this, this seems to me to be a problem that can only just marginally be managed. But and I think that she, Vice President Harris, was exactly right to go to Guatemala and said, "Don't don't come. You're going to walk 600 miles. You're going to risk yourself to everything in the world, and then you're going to get on a border, not even sure if you can come in or when you can come in." So I I, I very much would defend her on that. Look, 
all I could say is it's a problem. It's going to continue to be a problem. I would rather live in a country that people wanted to come in as opposed to one that people wanted to live. And what people like, if you, you ask people their opinions on immigration, they like immigration in the country. What they don't like is disorder. And, you know, we're seeing disorder rise as saliency is a political issue. And to the extent that's there, but I don't think there's no magic one policy that's going to make this go away. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with what's going on in, in, in Central America and, you know, where these gangs and people have no hope and they do exactly what you and I would do if you were in that same situation. You'd get your child and you'd start walking. And it, it, it's, it, it, it's a problem that, you know, no one, everyone has a talking point, no one has a solution. Including me. Harris got a Harris got a bum rap. Her assignment is the migrant issue, not the border issue. And at some point, she's going to go to the border. Biden will go to the border. It is a terrible problem. And when she said to the Guatemalans, "Don't come," this wasn't because the United States is not welcoming, but we had, we do have we have chaos there now. And it is, I think, it is misleading people to say, "Hey, you can come." And so I thought. I thought she right. did get a bum rap uh, on that. I, I agree. Right, right. And, and the people that were telling them that was, was of course, Fox, and then were saying right. that, you know, Biden was saying, come on up, everybody come. It's always, of course, it said no such thing. And by the way, when she goes to the border, everybody's going to criticize. I can already tell you, there's nothing. She's going to go down there, and they're going to say, well, it's too late. She didn't say anything. I mean, nobody's going to say, well, she had exhibited real courage and went to the border and tied up you know, 200 Border Patrol agents and doing their job. She should know this by now. She's in a can't-win You don't don't think maybe she gets a little extra criticism because she's a black woman, do you? Oh, Uh, no. no, Of course not. Look, she's half Jamaican, half Indian. She's married to a Jewish guy, and she's a strong woman. But that, that, that... But Tucker Carlson... He does. He does, and so do those those House Republicans, uh, uh, which... um, this is we got a couple more good questions. A couple from Florida in this. Sarah in Tallahassee says, "What's the formula for Val Demings to beat Marco Rubio for the Senate?" James, I think I'm probably have a slightly different take. I think Val Demings is a good candidate. Couldn't pick a better statewide candidate. I think Florida has just become an exceedingly difficult state. Uh, I, I think uh, Florida ranks behind Georgia, North Carolina, Wisconsin. I think and Arizona as far as a swing state now. I don't like saying that, but I think it's true. Yeah. Well, I, I disagree. Okay. And first of all, Bill Nelson came within 10,000 mm. votes in 2018. Secondly, 67% voted for a $15 minimum wage. 64% voted to allow felons who had done their time the right to vote. And I think that Val is a terrific Senate candidate. And, you know, she rides around in that motorcycle, and she needs to stay on that motorcycle and do events and maybe, like, get a, a sidecar. So when she brings a, a, a surrogate in, you know, take the motorcycle, run it up to the stage and give the speech because she's got the right kind of background. She's really smart, and I, I'm, I'm all in on, on her Senate candidacy. We've been disappointed by Florida, but, but I, I think that we got to look. I, th- I think there's a way that we can run a lot smarter campaigns down there. And we have not done that. Well, I hope you're right, but uh, you know, I, I don't. I, the, the I hope I am too. She, I, <laughs> I, I know right. you're right about her as a candidate, but I, you know, I like the idea of a sidecar with 
President Biden coming in and riding in the side sidecar. Yeah, man, riding the sidecar. That'd be good for yeah. her. Good for him. Yeah, what a vessel. Oh, yeah. Right. Good for, good for right. everything. And, you know, she's up like Boston charge and Biden right. in the sidecar or whoever comes. And, and I'm going to be sure that her campaign gets that good. idea. And that, that they'll set them, because, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm, I, I think the Democrats need to get out in front of this crime issue, and there's nothing, the motorcycle speaks very authoritatively to that. James, we're going to stay in Florida. Bob in Tampa says <clears throat> Marjorie Green and Matt Gatz. He understands how they're elected with gerrymandering uh, and a right-wing constituency, but how are they being accepted by mainstream Republicans outside their districts? Well, first of all, Getz's district is not particularly gerrymandered. I mean, that Florida first district. That's the Panhandle, right? Joe Scarborough. That's the western part of Panhandle. That, that, you, could move, you could move it over one or two seats. It, would, it, it wasn't going to matter that much. And uh, North Georgia has just become a, you know, one of the reddest places. If you, if you took that kind of Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, that kind of intersection there, I mean, this is some of the reddest of the red parts of the United States. Uh, you know, and I, of course, I'm a, you're on this as everybody else, but I'm just equally sick about redistricting, but I don't see it getting any better. And they're going to be, a lot of people are going to be cut out of these seats. So, but I don't think that, I guess, I wouldn't say Gates and, and Green are a, a part of gerrymandering. I think they just represent really I agree. deep red yeah. districts. But they're really bad. They are really, really, really bad. Hey, keep those questions coming. We love them. You were great this week about telling us where you're from. I only apologize for not getting to some of them because there were so many good ones. Hey, James, this is a big moment. This is our monthly Ivy League Sphincter Hall of Fame, our second batch of inductees. Have to attend an Ivy League school and be a first-class policy and political jerks. No, just ordinary bad ones. We start with Ron DeSantis, Yale and Harvard Law School. What do you think, James? Oh, yep, I, I, I concur. That was, you know, you sent me the list that, that this is number one, and I think we, we agree not just on the nomination, but also the placement of the nomination. He is, um, he, he is the most Trumpian guy I know, I think, uh, in, in Republican politics. Everything that Donald stands for, this guy Ron DeSantis stands for. He has gone and he has advocated voter suppression, limited the rights of felons to vote down there, uh, said that uh, transgender women can't play in sports with women and uh, and and girls. Uh, he's just done everything. Uh, he's a he's a very mean right winger, but he's smart and he's tough. And I hate to say it, uh, he he's likely to be reelected. So uh, we'll we'll keep that sphincter in the Hall of Fame. Congratulations, Governor DeSantis. James, next. Elise Stefanik. By the way, uh, I think that DeSantis and Stefanik were the top two vote-getters from our, our listeners who really have responded in a magnificent way to give us all kinds of ideas here. And just remember, they have to be Ivy Leaguers. Elise went to Harvard. Uh, she was the number three Republican, is the number three Republican in the House, uh, beat Liz Cheney. Uh, she came to the House as a Bush moderate Republican. 
And then she saw Trump and the handwriting on the wall, and she did a 179-degree turn. The former president's staunch opponent in the 16 campaign, or said she found him somewhat repulsive, now became his greatest defender. She voted to overturn uh, some of those election results in the House. And James, the one thing that really, really burned me, she went to that super spreader COVID rally that Trump held in June last year, one of the really great, awful, demagogic, uh, terrible events. It's the one where Herman Cain died. But there was Elise, you know, with her little Trump banner. She is a worthy entry into the Sphincter Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's too bad that Lindsey Graham didn't go to an Ivy League school because we could have had an argument over who we was could first. Have. But she, she got, yeah, we, but she has the cred. She's a, she's a female Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Next is Steve Bannon, the Harvard Business School. You know, we're giving too much attention to Harvard today, but uh, we'll be more diverse in the right. subsequent inductees. Right. You know, he is a classic hater. And if it weren't for the pardon from Trump, you know, he'd probably be in an orange jumpsuit about now. Uh, but, you know, his legal woes not, may not be over, James. No, and from what I understand, I hadn't been around him, thank God, but, but he, has a, he, he doesn't bathe a lot. He, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think his personal hygiene habits are all that good. And, uh, you know, he, he spread this crap all over the world. And, you know, they were fleecing these people left and right, and everybody knows it. And uh, I hope some of these state people are looking at this because he deserves a good close right. look. The next one, James, I'm going to let you uh, take off on. I think you might have some feelings. It is Ken Starr, who did graduate work at Brown University. Any thoughts about Ken Starr, James? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> you know, it's really sort of, if you take turning the other eye repeatedly a rape or arranging a cush sentence for Jeffrey Epstein to acting like you're some kind of a moral beacon alike, he's literally might be one of the worst people I've ever been you know, been, been around in my entire life. I, I, if you ask me to say something nice about that guy, I'm, I'm hard-pressed. I've assumed that he's a good parent. I don't have any reason to think that, but I'm just making that assumption. He is prissy. He is pompous. He is the kind of person that just, that just uh, uh, without any redeeming human qualities that I know of. And just a dreadful hypocrite. Uh, he is a, he, he prays as a moralist, yet every controversy he's involved in, uh, James, and that's putting it kindly, has a sexual connotation. As you mentioned, at Baylor he was the president and he ran out in the football field with a football team. He just celebrated. The problem is that a number of them were sexual assaulters and he, he, he covered it up. Raping. To raping these, these right, and, and they man. fired him as president. That's what happened to Ken Starr right. at Baylor. And then he was right. He, he denied right, he got fired, although he did. Uh, and then he, yeah. along with one of our original inductees in the Sphincter Hall of Fame, Alan Dershowitz, was one of Jeffrey Epstein's lawyers. It's hard to think of very many people who were more despicable than Jeffrey Epstein. But in April uh, of last year. Uh, it was Starr who wrote a letter saying, hey, you know, these charges are exaggerated. 
Well, that's that's Ken Starr. He's he somehow just gets connected to all the sleazy sex stuff. We can figure out later why. Well, I, I bet you what else was exaggerated was his fee. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he wrote it for free. We have a final inductee. This is this is a good class, uh, James. I don't know that it's quite up to the level of the first class, but it's certainly a very impressive second class for a sphincter Hall of Fame. Uh, and our final inductee. Mike Pompeo of Harvard Law School. Uh, Tom Friedman and Fred Kaplan pronounced him the worst Secretary of State in the history of America. That, that covers a lot of territory. He was mainly a Trump lap, lap dog. Uh, he was on policy after policy, achieved nothing. And he fired the Inspector General over there who was investigating his own name, Pompeo's, ethical transgressions when he was sending government employees to doing personal tasks for the secretary and his wife. He's a good indu inductee. Yeah, he's going to keep on giving because he's going to run for president yeah. in 2024, I promise you. You know, I promise you. So we, we, we might be able to smell this guy's fart for a long <laughs> time in the future. <laughs> you know, let me make one more point about him. He graduated first in his class from West Point. Now, I am a great admirer of the service academies. I think Annapolis and West Point are two of the great institutions in America. I'm a little bit skeptical of those who finish first or second in the class. Mike Pompeo, Douglas MacArthur, Robert E. Lee, John Poindexter. I like, I like those that finish in the middle of the class or even towards the bottom. Dwight Eisenhower, Ulysses Grant, John McCain. Give me the B and C students uh, at West Point Annapolis. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, of course, uh, I want to be clear. The Air Force Academy it is. is also so, uh, and it, and and the and the Merchant Coast Marine Guard. Academy too. And the Coast, yeah, yeah. No, we, we no, I, I know you didn't. You right. Know, but we, we're very fortunate in this country that our service academies are, 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 are you know, not places without historical issues and problems, stuff like that. But I, I think we do a good oh, job of training our. One of the great thrills of my life, as you know, was seven or eight years ago. Go spend to spend. Um, you know, about four days up at West Point. It's an experience everybody ought to have. It's a it's a magical place, and so is so is Annapolis. And uh, let's hear it for Eisenhower, Grant, McCain, middle towards the bottom of the class. Uh, this was a good. Speaking of classes, this was a good uh, uh, Sphincter Hall of Fame Ivy League inductees. Next month, James, we're going to have our first old timers. These are you know we'll go back to the beginning of the Republic. Again, they have to be Ivy League attendees, and they have to meet the sphincter qualifications. We've gotten a number of nominations, but we're looking for more this week. I'm looking for more. If we need for the old timers that next month, that's what we're going to do. So please give us our nominations. I mean, I already give you my first one, and we know what it is. It's John C. Calhoun, but I'm pretty sure he's going to be down. Hard to imagine him being denied, but we'll find out next month. So uh, keep them coming. you got time. Think about it but they have to go to Ivy League schools. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor, Blinkist. We deeply thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. 
To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com listen.